0: Welcome, everybody, to this, the latest in our podcasts in the series of Well Spoken. Uh, These are uh, topics of legal interest uh, to those we know working in the oil and gas industries and also uh, in commodities trading. And the topic um, we are going to talk about today, which is um, um, MAC or MAC clauses. Or material adverse change clauses, material adverse event clauses, call them what you will. Um, these clauses are becoming increase, increasingly important uh, in both uh, commodities trading contracts and uh, oil and gas contracts generally. So we have today uh, Peter Bennett, who's one of our senior lawyers involved in both areas of business. Uh, so Peter, welcome and. Um, We're going to ask you to uh, explain uh, MAC clauses for those who are not yet familiar with them, who who might become more familiar with them as time goes on. Uh, And also we'll get on to some detail for those who are familiar with them and and like to know more about um, how they should operate. So Peter, um, we're, we're going to discuss what they are. We're going to discuss why they've become more prominent recently. Uh, and then we're going to move on to the particular risks that uh, there are surrounding termination rights and and how we terminate and how we avoid getting it wrong. So Peter.
1: Thank you very much for that uh, introduction Stuart. Um, MAC or um, material adverse change or uh, may or material adverse event clauses are now typically found in many different types of agreement we come across Um, SPAs in general business and oil and gas and product and commodity contracts and commodity finance agreements as well of course as loans. Um, The MAC clause um, which I'll use to describe both MAC and ME clauses is often found in the um, section in a contract described as events of default. It's entirely a creature of contract and it is a clause which sets out a a set of circumstances which would affect one or other party to the contract. And if those circumstances are satisfied, or the criteria are satisfied, it confers upon the um, other party, which I describe as the non-defaulting party, the right to terminate the agreement. And note here I describe it as a right, whereas sometimes you'll find in these contracts Um, the party is given a discretion to exercise um, um, the right of termination. Um, And also in contracts, it will often provide for um, the acceleration, for example, in a loan agreement, um, an acceleration of payment provisions. And also you will find that um, entitlement under commodity finance agreements. But it then entitles the other party, once they exercise um, a right to terminate the contract, to. Calculate the losses from that contract and sets out specific um, ways in which those losses are um, to be assessed. The important thing to remember about these clauses is that they are quite detached from the concept of a breach of contract. So they only arise if they are part of the contract, set out in the contract in clauses, and quite independent of any question of a breach of an obligation. as I say, it's important to recognize that the clause confers a contractual right to terminate, um, and it wouldn't necessarily mean that when that change occurs, it amounts to a repudiated breach of an agreement by the so-called defaulting party, which is why I mentioned that the fact is this gives a, a contractual right to terminate as opposed to a right to, 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 to discharge the Part of the obligations under the contract.
0: Are they perhaps similar to insolvency clauses, but where there's an adverse change which doesn't um, constitute an insolvency?
1: That's right. You often find it in these event of default clauses. It comprises a number of so-called events of default, and as you say, one of them is insolvency. Um, Another might be there may be cross-default provisions which which uh, uh, trigger the event of default. But clearly, um, uh, uh, which clearly these are. Rights conferred upon the non defaulting party to um, terminate an agreement in the whole. Um, sometimes in commodity contracts, it gives the party a right to suspend shipments, but it's really quite a draconian measure. I think it's been brought about in contracts largely through um, the need for contracts nowadays to be what we call bankable. And banks frequently require these rights in order to escape from obligations under contracts, um, or they're seeking to close out deals which are for example business or money deals.
0: But it'd be interesting to learn more about why, why we're hearing more about them recently, why have they come to prominence and, and haven't been heard of um, previously?
1: You're quite right Stuart, they, they've always been in these contracts but rarely looked at. Um, I think with the downturn of business and whether or not by, caused by the Covid pandemic, Parties, quite frankly, have been looking at means of terminating or getting out of their obligations because they suddenly turn out to be bad business. So they tend to use um, means of expediency, often couched in legal language, to get out of these deals. And interestingly enough, there was a recent case called Travelports and WEX, which is the first reported decision on the interpretation and application of a MAC clause, which was allegedly triggered by the consequences of the Covid pandemic. The Travelport uh, decision was a case which uh, didn't involve um, oil and gas or commodities, but a, a business, international business. Um, it, con- it was, as I say, the first reported decision where, uh, in this instance, an MAE clause was relied upon against the backdrop of a Covid pandemic. And the case involved an agreement between the two parties for the sale by ports to WEX of shares in two companies. Um, the businesses operated by the companies involved. the development and expansion of online business-to-business payments. Um, the bulk of the payments business related to the travel industry. Um, between signing the agreement and completion, COVID had had a dramatic effect on the business environment generally. And in this instance, WEX as the buyer claimed that the COVID pandemic and its effects amounted to an MAE uh, as defined under the SPA, and it wasn't therefore prepared to complete or close the agreement. So this case actually looked at um, a specific MAE clause in the context of the M&A transaction. Um, and before quickly looking at that clause, it's worth pointing out that these clauses, MAC clauses or MAE clauses, vary in sophistication amongst the different types of contracts. As we'll come to, the clause in the Travelport uh, travel case was very sophisticated. But in commodity contracts it's often not very sophisticated. they're just very simple, straightforward. Um, they you because you often think to yourself, "Well, look, if you're going to have a mac clause, should I define what the change is, or should I define what the event is or what the material?" The answer is not always. The other thing we need to look at is um. What has to change? Uh, is it the change in the company's financial condition or other matters which have to be considered? Is there any timing? Um, what are the parameters? What are the comparators? And who has to assess the whether the change has occurred? Is it in the uh, decision-making process of the non-defaulting party? What are the criteria? Do they have to exercise a discretion? Do they have a right which is not subject to any discretion?
0: It seems to me, if I may suggest, Peter, that you've you mentioned that some give a clear right of termination, whereas others leave it as the exercise of a discretion. Uh, to my mind, that sounds like an area of potential disputes where it wouldn't be clear whether the right to terminate is arisen or not. That must cause many problems.
1: Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, the problem is it's one of these clauses which is drafted as a. I mean, it's a it's a it's a real um, hammer to the deal, and you're trying to draft one of these clauses in a nice sort of way and user-friendly, but there's nothing user-friendly when you're looking to terminate a contract. And there is a fundamental distinction between whether you want to exercise a right, which is if you have the right to exercise it, the fact that it is expedient um, doesn't matter. On the other hand, if you're looking at questions of discretion, and in some cases you have requirements of exercising good faith, then of course you've got to look at your so-called defaulting parties interests Um, and therefore the question of discretion will arise which involves issues of whether the right has been exercised in a capricious or arbitrary way Uh, and you and I know Stuart and then when markets are in turmoil uh, people are often capricious and arbitrary in the exercise of clear contractual rights because often it's Expedient to get out of a contract, and sometimes they take full advantage against a contract which gives the right to terminate in order to um, take full advantage and, and get out of the deal.
0: In my experience, the importance here, if, if you're looking for something that's fair and balanced, is to make it clear the circumstances in which the right of termination arises, at least both parties know where they stand to include subjective test based on discretion or good faith creates uncertainty, um which isn't really good for either party.
1: not at all. It's, it's it's the It's the lesson to the draftsman as to how you would put together this clause um, because you need to have the triggers, and let's say the parameters, the comparators, set out very, very clearly so that people can determine exactly whether or not that right has arisen. And if they do have to exercise a discretion, um, what would be the requirements of that discretion in the absence of any express wording? Um, So it is something to be looked at and considered with great care when drafting and also when looking to exercise that right.
0: And, And you mentioned also at the beginning that these are not events which otherwise you would treat as an event breach, are they? They're simply what you state as a fact has occurred. Uh, Which would entitle termination. I've seen it in the work I do in sort of offshore construction contracts, where an insolvency clause may be drafted so widely that many, many events in there, nothing like insolvency, there perhaps would just be material adverse changes of the type you're describing. But if they occur, then there's an automatic right of termination. That's absolutely right. And of course, the
1: other thing, as I mentioned at the outset the contractual right arises quite independent of a breach at common law. So of course, you might have a contractual right to terminate, but where there's no actual repudiatory breach by the so-called defaulting party. And we'll come to that later on as to how you deal with that, because if you get the contractual right wrong and you haven't served the notice of termination correctly, if there is a repudiatory breach which would have otherwise entitled you to get out of the contract, you'll have lost the right to exercise that right.
0: Is it worth just explaining a little, when we use we English lawyers use the word repudiatory breach, is it worth just explaining how it could be that the exercise of a right of termination could put the non-defaulting party into a repudiatory breach?
1: Well, if if they've
0: exercised the contractual rights incorrectly
1: and terminated, that by itself would be a repudiatory breach of the contract. Or could be a repudiated breach of the contract. Because what you're doing is you're effectively um, tearing up the contract, refusing to perform it on the grounds of the other party's um, uh, event of default, which actually has been wrongfully exercised. And that in itself shows your intention no longer to be bound and puts you in repudiated breach of the contract. And you would be liable for damages.
0: Uh, Would it be possible for the party that's trying to terminate, and as it turns out, as Wrongfully done so, is this sufficient for them to say, oh, sorry, I didn't mean it? Can they do that? There is this sort of exception,
1: for example, in Woodard and Wimpey, where if a party um, acts on their honest understanding of the terms of a contract without any ulterior uh, intention to abandon the contract, they can't be treated as having been in repudiatory breach of the contract, although they'll still be in breach. But these are where objectively, it's clear that they were never intending to abandon the contract, they just misunderstood the law. But they're very narrow exceptions. And what I'm considering here is where a party clearly intends objectively to terminate the contract, and actually wrongfully does so.
0: Yes, and and that must, would you agree that must be more likely that the um, repudiation is more likely in the commercial contracts that we're talking about, particularly Trading contracts, um, the exigencies of maritime trade lead to contracts being treated as conditions?
1: Yes, very much so. I mean, the examples are, um, for example, failing to open up a letter of credit and such like, which would, uh, would be a, an of the essence provision and a failure, subject to the terms of the contract, failure to open would be treated as a repudiated breach by a buyer um, of the contract. I suppose this, this brings me to the, the, the particular MAC or MA, MAE clause in the travel board decision. And just by way of background, in um, many m M&A and transactions, there's always a risk that the selling company's business um, will deteriorate between the signing and the closing of, a, of, of, of the agreement, which actually threatens the fundamentals of the deal. And these m and agreements, typically address this problem through complex and highly negotiated material adverse change clauses. And they provide that if a party has suffered a MAC within the meaning of the agreement, the counterparty can cancel the deal. And what we found, and as, and the decision in Travelports looks at these MAC clauses from the US, because that's where they've effectively been imported from, in a very detailed way, in a very interesting way. Um, and what you find is that despite the attention of the contracting parties give to the provisions of the deal, MAC clauses and MEE clauses typically don't define what's material. And people have often said, well, the way the parties argue this is to, that they will find it more efficient to leave the term undefined because, of the, because the resulting uncertainty generates more productive opportunities for renegotiation. But what the clauses do is rather than devote resources to defining specific tests of materiality. The practice is for the parties to negotiate exceptions and exclusions from exceptions that allocate the particular risk in um, in the MAE deal. So a typical MAE clause would allocate general market or industry risk to the buyer and company specific risks to the seller. And from a drafting perspective, the MAE provision does this by placing the general risk of an MAE on the seller and then using the exceptions to reallocate the specific categories of risk on a buyer. And then it provides for exclusion from the exceptions to return the risk to the seller. And that effectively is what happened in the Travel Ports decision. And what you had was a definition of a material adverse effect, which was extensive. And it then provided a carve out to that material adverse effect, which actually included the pandemic. So effectively, the pandemic, an effect of a pandemic, was excluded from the material adverse effect, but then it had a carve-out exception, which allowed, in this case, the buyer, the onus to demonstrate that the pandemic fell within the carve-out exception, so it could actually rely upon the clause. Um, it's a very, it's a very uh, interesting decision, uh, and and obviously worth looking at. But I think. It's not only is it interesting from the point of view of just a historical analysis of these types of clauses, but it's clear in going back to our, what we said earlier, Stuart, that you have to draft these clauses extremely carefully. Um, they're not these midnight hour clauses, because nowadays people will actually look to use these clauses, if necessary, in what might be a volatile market.
0: So the question of what is treated as material... And how the parties establish that it's material is something that does need special attention, doesn't it? In, again, in the contracts that I've seen more on the the offshore construction side, one of the parties has to show that the adverse change will affect the performance and the ability to deliver on time. That is, it's one has to either um, prove that it will, or the other one has an obligation to prove a negative to show that it... It won't uh, but either way you should normally make clear which one has the proving to do
1: yes well one of these the the, the, the travel uh, case was a case dealing with preliminary points and it addressed the question of where the burden of proof lies in each of these and that's something which clearly has to be addressed and the other point to bear in mind just uh, just from a pragmatic point of view is in the when you're selling a business where the the, the sole asset in the deal is the business, MAC clauses are clearly relevant. But when you're in commodity contracts, the business and the value of the seller or the buyer is often quite irrelevant to the actual performance because you either have a commodity delivered to you or you don't. Um, and often it, uh, itself will not affect the performance of the, um, by um, the so-called defaulting party to deliver the product. So again, you will find one of, the, one of the things to bear in mind is the MAC event may not itself be a repudiatory breach of the contract, i.e. in the performance of the contract, because it's only affecting the value, for example, of that company, and therefore itself would not amount to a repudiatory breach. Um, so if you're looking, and of course, in the, in the case of commodity contracts, you have other means of assessing the risk because it's in relation to the value of the commodity, and you can deal with risk by hedging. You could be a major business in the in, um, uh, such as the travel port business. Uh,
0: Peter, can I also ask that quite often exercising rights of termination can turn very much on the contract mechanisms for giving notices? Sometimes people can get those wrong. Is that a problem here?
1: Yes, Stuart, it can be very
0: much a problem.
1: Um, I mentioned before that, uh, the Termination rights uh, under events of default clauses are creatures of contract, and they operate; they can operate quite independently of any separate breach. Um, and if you get it wrong in relation to the event of default, and haven't structured your notice correctly, then you would lose; you could lose the right to treat the contract at an end on the grounds of the counterparty's other breach of contract. Um, so you have to bear that in mind very carefully. I mean. The the best way of looking at this is the uh, decision in the Phones for You and EE case, which was a couple of years ago or so. Um, I mean, time would prevent a full analysis of the decision. Um, but one of the one of the clear, clear points in this case was the termination letter sent by, in that case, EE to Phones for You. Uh, this was a case which um, evolved following the administration of Phones for You. And what happened was, um under the agreement between Phones for U and EE, the latter had a right to terminate a contract uh, on the appointment of administrators over phones for you. Um, and the letter which terminated the contract purported to terminate uh, in accordance with the clause fourteen point two two of the agreement. And this clause, which is often found in the standard events of default clauses, was a standard insolvency termination clause. And um, just as you mentioned before, Stuart, an insolvency clause um, was applicable here. And the insolvency clause having allowed termination on the grounds of appointed administrators, the letter relying upon that then went on to provide, and they said, well, nothing herein shall be deemed to constitute a waiver of any default or termination event, and EE hereby reserves all rights and remedies it may have under the agreement. But the letter only terminated on the grounds of the contractual termination rights. It didn't mention, in one way, the possible repudiatory breach by Phones for You. Um, now, this is interesting because EE claimed about 200 million dollars arising out of Phones for us alleged breach, and what the issues were were the following: I mean, was there a breach by Phones for You, and was their administration? a repudiatory breach. And this is a very interesting concept because people often think, well, if a company goes broke, it has repudiated the contract. And a comment is made in forms for you that that is not necessarily the case. The simple insolvency of a company does not necessarily mean that the company is in repudiated breach of its agreement. And that's why you find these insolvency clauses being defined as events of default. And then it went on to assess whether the terms of the termination letter um, would defeat any claim by EE for damages for th- any alleged repudiated breach by phones for you. And what the court said was, well, EE did have a reasonable prospect of establishing that phones for you had been in repudiated breach of the contract, not by reason of the appointment of the administrators, but by subsequent steps. So there was a possibility that they were in rep- repudiated breach of contract. And it then went on to say that, um, uh, that it, on the question of whether the terms of the EE letter defeated the claim for for um, the claim for loss of bargain, it said that it did defeat a claim, because what it said was that um, where there was a contractual right to terminate which exists, such as in this case under the insolvency clause, and um, that right is expressly exercised, and there's been no mention made of the other alleged repudiatory breach, then you have lost the right to treat the other party as in repudiated breach of the contract.
0: And and I think that decision was a surprise to many people in the areas that we work in, because normally if you terminate, you terminate, and if if, if there's a repudiated breach, then you brought the contract to an end. It doesn't matter how. But that case says otherwise, a lot of people in our industry have started to revisit and spend more time on doing termination notices than used to be the case. Completely. I mean,
1: it's uh, it, it, here, of course, they had a, they, he had a counter claim a £200 million based upon contractual termination, but it really needed to rely upon a repudiatory breach to get that. And it had lost that by the letter. So the message is all, all, with all these MAC clauses and all the termination rights we talk about, you have to draft very, very carefully. Um, there really is a lesson for all the draftsmen in, in, in all these instances um, that, um, I mean, in this instance, the, the, termination, the termination letter needs to address both the alleged repudiatory breach and the, ter- the contractual termination to make sure you've got, you keep both options alive.
0: So uh, well, how would we conclude then, Peter? It sounds like it's uh, a rather complex topic, even though it ought to be quite straightforward. But it sounds like it's not. I think the lesson is,
1: in all instances, careful drafting of the MAC and the MEE clause at all times, Um, Where you're looking to exercise rights of termination uh, you need to consider whether there's actually been a a separate breach of contract and if you're looking to terminate under the rights of termination follow the termination clause very very carefully. I don't think there's there's anything um, uh, new in the sense of um, uh, risks. You just have to make sure the drafting is correct and um, the advice you get is correct.
0: Okay, and if I could put you on the spot to finish, um, although I can see how these have a place in financing agreements and uh, long-term contracts um, and oil and gas projects, do they really have a place in um, commodities trading contracts?
1: I think we could live without them. But they'll always be there because commodity contracts now have to be bankable. There's so much banking behind them. Usually banks will insist on commodity contracts. And some people just put them in there because they're just part of the furniture.
0: Okay, well, thank you. We look forward to um, any questions that people have. Just send us an email. And we also look forward to being with you on the next edition of Well Spoken. Thank you very much, Peter. That was, uh, that was good. Thank you. Thank you.